Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Ano Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. back to the Irish Passport podcast where Tim we are finally on our last installment of our War of Independence mini series. Yes, we are. We made it. Naomi, we, we made, made it. it. We made it. We're we're here. We're finally here. Uh, so the last three episodes in this mini series, everyone, have brought us up to the all important Anglo-Irish Treaty. Mm-hmm. That is the result of the truce that ended the War of Independence and which brought about the officially recognized separation of the 26 southern counties of Ireland from the United Kingdom. Of course, it wouldn't be Irish history without things getting complicated. Mm-hmm. The signing of this treaty heralded a new era of conflict and violence, mm-hmm. which we'll explain in a minute. Firstly, just a quick note to any new listeners. If you're tuning in for the first time, you'll probably need to go back and listen to the previous three installments in this War of Independence miniseries, because otherwise you might not be able to make sense much of what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. So go and get yourself caught up and we'll be waiting for you. Right. Okay, Tim, in a nutshell, our previous three episodes covered the outbreak of the Irish Revolution. Irish rebels won a landslide voting majority in the country and immediately declared independence from the United Kingdom by forming their own Irish Republican government. Mm. By 1921, this government, called the Dáil, and its army, the IRA, had a foothold across most of the island and in most parts of the country, they were the de facto authority. British police forces had tried their best to combat the IRA rebels, but with every passing day, it seemed more and more impossible to turn back the clock on the revolution. Mm. One major exception to this situation, of course, was the Northern Territory of Ulster, where much of the Protestant population still proclaimed their loyalty to Britain, raising the possibility of a civil war between North and South. To try and resolve all of this, the British government drew up two new autonomous home rule jurisdictions in Ireland – one for the northerly six counties and one for the rest of the island. This would give each jurisdiction a degree of self-rule, but would ultimately maintain the whole island under UK control. Partition was universally unpopular, but Unionists eventually accepted the new jurisdiction of Northern Ireland in order to avoid getting subsumed into an Irish Republic. In the south, however, the rebels pressed on, refusing to accept anything less than a completely independent all-island state. Okay, nicely summarised, Naomi. So, where we left you guys last time, partition had just been enacted, and the political map of Ireland had been redrawn completely from scratch. By 1921, however, Mm -hmm. now that the Irish War of Independence had been raging for over two years, something extraordinary happens. The United Kingdom capitulates and offers the Irish rebels a truce. Well, okay, so this is a pretty big deal. We are talking here about the most powerful empire on the planet, which at this stage ruled about a quarter of all the land on Earth. This was not the kind of thing that happened very often. Quite the opposite, in fact. In general, Britain was determined not to show any signs of capitulation to rebellious colonies, precisely because that would undermine its authority in the rest of the globe. As we'll see, this truce came with some inevitably hard-to-swallow conditions. But even at that, it stands as a watershed moment in 20th century history and in the history of the British Empire as a whole. So, Tim, given all that, why did Britain decide to make this move? Okay, well, there were a few reasons. Firstly, let's look at the general context of 1921. Mm -hmm. 
the circumstances of both Ireland and Britain were changing and they were changing really, really fast. Mm-hmm. If we think back, for most of the War of Independence period, Ireland had held a certain advantage because the UK was still reeling from the chaos of World War I, which had only finished up in 1918. Mm. Westminster had, if, if you think about it, been effectively trying to put down the Irish insurrection with this skeleton police force, uh, as well as this ragtag militia of demobilised veterans. But it had been a few years since the end of the war now, and steadily, slowly but surely, Britain had been building back up their armed forces quite considerably. The opposite was true for the Irish rebels. The IRA had suffered serious casualties, and most of all, they were fast running out of weapons, Mm. which, as you'll remember, still had to be smuggled into the country. Since the war had taken a grave toll on Ireland's civilian population, and particularly considering the campaign of terror led by Churchill's Black and Tans, the public were already worn down, and there were serious questions about how long the revolution could logistically be sustained. Yeah, so this situation was causing lots of anxiety on both sides. Britain had spent a fortune on the war in Ireland already, and this so-called Irish question was still nowhere near to being resolved. And if you think back to our very, very first instalment on this series, that Irish question dated back half a century, more than that, at this stage. Now, the current tactics of Britain was using officially sanctioned reprisals against the civilian population, And despite all the bloodshed that that had caused, it hadn't really got them very far. If anything, it had helped to fuel the fires of resistance on the ground and turned more moderate people against them. Um, So if the British were going to keep fighting this war, the logical next step was to escalate the operations in the country and effectively just lead a full-scale military invasion into Ireland. Now, this was something they absolutely didn't want to do. Firstly, it would draw even more attention to Britain's inability to control Ireland, Mm -hmm. and they were trying to avoid that attention at all costs, just try and keep everyone looking somewhere else, you know, Mm -hmm. like, don't look at us, look over there, nothing behind the curtain here. Secondly, it would alienate the Irish even further, so even if they managed to crush the rebels, the Irish question was just going to arise again in a few years anyway, right? Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have solved anything. They were just kicking the can down the road. And thirdly, it would have been really, really unpopular, as we will see, both Mm -hmm. among the British public and among international observers. So the Irish situation had severely damaged Britain's reputation already. We're going to look at that in a moment. And it was questionable whether trying to keep Ireland would ultimately fracture the empire even more than it would be if they just simply let it go Mm. now. It goes without saying that an escalation of the war would also have been a disaster for the Dáil. In their weakened state, a full-on military invasion from Britain would inevitably turn into a massacre on an unprecedented scale. They were very careful not to let the British know about this, but in essence, it was the wise thing to do at this stage to engage in talks rather than pressing further. Right, so I think the realisation in 1921 of just how much worse this situation could get Mm -hmm. made everyone on both sides just step back for a moment. Remember also, now that the Ulster Unionists had formed a military front, it seemed logistically impossible for the Dáil to win independence for the whole island through force alone. That was just not going to happen now. So that made negotiations even more pressing on their side. Remember also that Westminster still had its plan for home rule up its sleeve. In their view, the implementation of self-governance might still be the key element in coming to a settlement with the rebels. Mm. The second thing to take into account in all this was the current state of international opinion. 
Now, I want to spend a moment considering this, Naomi, because mm-hmm. I think that if we've seen one thing through the last installments on this subject, it has been that this war was so, so dependent on swaying international actors in one way or another. Mm. You know, there's an information battle going on between two narratives of what was happening in Ireland mm-hmm. right over these years. There was the British narrative, which was, you know, ostensibly should have been the most powerful. It went like this. The Irish people are, at heart, loyal imperial subjects. Mm -hmm. But some strange, you know, mysterious extremist minority who came out of nowhere with these crazed socialist ideas have whipped the simpleton peasants into a frenzy and they've manipulated them into turning against the giving protective empire who has given them everything and who just wants what's best for them. Mm. Uh, And this narrative takes it as a given that the Irish need British rule. Like, that is a presumption for Mm -hmm. this narrative, that they need British rule in order for their country to prosper economically. And it also kind of assumes that the Irish are just too short-sighted and too politically immature to understand that kind of cruel, hard fact of the world, right? Mm. So it paints all this as a storm in a teacup. It's, you know, it's irrational. Paddy is acting up again. But at the end of the day, you know, nothing to see here. Okay, this is kind of paternalistic view. Yeah. Of course, we've seen this narrative played out in actions as well as words in Mm. our last few episodes. You might think about how the British strategically ignored the Dawes uh, Declaration of Independence in 1919 for as long as they possibly could. Mm. Um, Also, think about how the war was conducted. The Black and Tans were sent into Ireland under the guise of a police force, hmm? not military units. Even the auxiliary division was styled as a paramilitary unit of the police. In reality, of course, we're talking about thousands of British recruits being sent into the country and being given carte blanche in their attacks and reprisals against rebels and civilians alike. Mm -hmm. But because they were officially police, the whole thing could be framed as nothing more than an episode of civil unrest. And I suppose, you know, how can you say that a place is like an integral part of your country if you're having to invade it. Yeah, right. <laughs> to, to settle it, you know. That's a, that's actually, that is a big issue. Yeah, yeah. As, as we're going to see in a moment. Yeah, at the end of the day, this just looks really, really bad for Britain in all sorts of ways, just like what you said, Naomi. Mm-hmm. And the UK had a lot of interest, including that, in avoiding that this be too highly publicised. Like we've said before, this was mainly about the fear of contagion. Mm-hmm. So trying to make sure that other colonies didn't start imitating the Irish... If you remember, think back to Randolph Churchill's speech to the Orange Order. He spelt it out quite frankly. He said, quote, If we cannot hold this country, how can we expect to hold India? It was also a question of national and imperial image. The fact that Britain's closest colony and a famously impoverished downtrodden colony at that was staging a surprisingly successful revolution was embarrassing and Mm. it made the empire look weak. Yes. So Britain needed to control the narrative. This was really important. Uh, They needed to get their version of events front and centre. And we can see this in how information about the war was controlled and disseminated in Britain. So we might think back to what we've seen already, the weekly summary, that propaganda Mm -hmm. newspaper for the Black and Tans. That was put together from snippets for the Black and Tans. But all those snippets of newspapers came from you know, British newspapers that were publishing this for the general public as well. Um, and many of those newspapers, as we've seen, were constantly proclaiming that the IRA were on the brink of defeat and the real Irish people actually loved being part of the UK, etc., etc. Like, this stuff might sound cynical, but when a powerful country like Britain puts out a narrative like this, like, no matter how kind of silly or fantastical or divorced from the truth the no- those narratives might be, mm-hmm. usually 
they're extraordinarily effective. Mm. I mean, some of the early episodes of this podcast show that, right, in real time. If we think that, from what we've seen, Naomi, that mm. today a significant population in Britain has been successfully convinced that no Irish revolution ever took place <laughs> and that Ireland is still a part of the UK. <laughs> and, they're, you know, they're living their lives a few kilometres from Ireland, happily believing that. You know, it, it shows how powerful this can be. Mm. Um, when state and media tell you stuff like this, it doesn't occur to you to question it most of the time. And, like, people are busy, right? Mm -hmm. And remember, we're not just talking about UK influence here. This is a narrative that, at this point in history, could be disseminated across the British Empire, across a quarter of the globe. It's, it's impossible not to be hearing these words and saying these words and thinking about current events and the yeah. parallels. You know, a surprisingly successful, like, um, military front in a, in a smaller country that's thought to be weaker and that's been impoverished and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And this bigger country that has this incredible success in controlling the narrative, even when it's absurd. It's just, it's impossible not to think of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We're recording right now in September 2022, and the current situation is that Ukraine has launched a really strikingly effective counterattack and retaken a bunch of territory in the north and east of Ukraine. And Russia is kind of on the back foot and getting under significant international pressure to bring an end to its invasion. So yeah, you know, we know we know how effective this can be, right? We see it every day in our own lives these days. Mm -hmm. And here is the thing, which I f kind of find amazing, actually. You know, in an age where international media really wasn't that old, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like international media really has just kind of come about in the mid-19th century, the Irish rebels were just so aware of the power of the narrative and the power of what they could do mm -hmm. to counter that narrative. Mm -hmm. Remember, one of their primary strategies of the whole revolution was to bypass Britain and gain recognition of the Irish Republic from countries all around the world. And to do so, they had to ensure that their own narrative was very coherent and that it was heard. And more than that, that it overshadowed the narrative put out by Britain. Right. No easy task, right? Mm -hmm. Now... This, if we look at this narrative um, in comparison or in contrast to what we've just seen, this is a narrative that Ireland was an occupied country, mm -hmm. that the British Empire was a violent oppressor, and that through resource extraction and systemic oppression, it had kept the, the island of Ireland in a state of desperate poverty for centuries, and now Britain was denying the democratic mandate of the Irish people through a campaign of terror waged on the civilian population. Mm. Remember also that this is a really pivotal moment for narratives like this to gain traction. Mm -hmm. World War I had just reframed the idea uh, of empire and that world order mm. in people's minds all around the world very strongly. Mm -hmm. And particularly, it had brought up this issue of small nations, right? And small nations' rights to self-determination. And it was quite a romantic narrative. It kind of went well with the times. And it had the advantage as well of presenting Ireland as, a, as an underdog, right? Mm -hmm. A likeable underdog, mm -hmm. right? Um, so all that the doll needed to do was to make sure everyone heard it. Right. So from its earliest days, the doll built up a propaganda machine that was specifically aimed at an international audience, particularly at the countries of the British Empire and also at the United States. They meticulously recorded the acts of the British army in Ireland and they sent out press releases on a daily basis to foreign correspondents all around the world. They even set up a special expense budget for inviting foreign journalists to Ireland so that they could show them what was happening firsthand. 
Yeah, so this meant that despite Britain's best efforts, the chilling details of the War of Independence were making international headlines throughout this time. In addition to this, the Dáil created a special propaganda newspaper called the Irish Bulletin, mainly for export around the world. Five issues of this paper were produced every week, pretty much over the whole course of the war. They all had to be done in secret, by the way. Um, the Irish Bulletin was banned, and you could be arrested if you were found with one in your possession. So it had to be smuggled out of the country. It represented such a threat that British authorities reportedly began to create counterfeit versions using typewriters that were stolen from Sinn Féin offices. Yeah, right. Now, and Subversive versions, I guess, of the narrative. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Lots of tricks going on here. And you can see why they might have done this, because mm. the Irish Bulletin was really something else. Mm -hmm. uh, something that this newspaper would do quite often is look at what articles were being printed in the British press, and then they would reprint those articles and just completely dismantle them, take them apart and show loads of evidence to show why it wasn't true. Wow. Right? Yeah, it's something it's like else. fact-checking. Yeah, well, yeah, fact-checking. I mean, they would use official documents sometimes, but a lot of what they did was use interviews with the people who were involved mm. in the actual occasions. Okay. You might consider this volume, for instance, from the 12th of October uh, in 1920. The article is entitled The, quote, severe hitting back of Mr. Lloyd George's, quote, gallant men. The paper begins by reprinting a quote from the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George from four days previously. Lloyd George said, quote, There is no doubt that at last the patience of the English police in Ireland has given way, and there has been some severe hitting back. Let us be fair to those gallant men who are doing their duty in Ireland. The Irish Bulletin then goes on to provide a testimony from an eyewitness of a recent black and tan attack in Lahinch, County Clare, on the 21st of September. That night, the village of Lahinch, along with the nearby towns of Ennis Tymon, Liscanner and Milltown Mulbay, were all set aflame, with black and tans then opening fire on the residents. Beneath Lloyd George's dismissal of the black and tan reprisals, the Bulletin prints the testimony of a young woman who had been burnt out of her home to illustrate quite how gallant these British police really were and what hitting back actually looked like for a civilian population. And just to set the scene for this testimony, because it's really quite dramatic, mm -hmm. um, Lahinch is a small coastal town in County Clare. It's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's built right on this very big, kind of famous beach that faces into the Atlantic. So it gets these great big spectacular waves. If you go there today, you'll see lots of surfers there. It's really gorgeous. Um, and at this time, and still actually, it was mainly a holiday destination for people in the cities of Limerick and Galway. Uh, the witness describes being woken up in the middle of the night by gunshots and shouting and how her elderly aunt started to panic and wanted to run from the house. But the witness is really scared. So she's trying to shut her aunt up right from making noise because mm. she's afraid that the this old woman is going to wake the baby. And she thinks if the baby starts screaming that it's going to attract the police to the house and they'll mm. set the house on fire. So she slips into her nightgown and uh, she goes out to warn the neighbours that the black and tans have descended um, and she sees then that the whole village is being burned. So here's some of what she says. Here they shot a young man named Salmon, who was here on holidays at the time, helping an old man of 75 years to escape. The next thing I saw was Tommy Flanagan's, Susie Flanagan's, and Matt Reynolds' house in a mass of flames. And above all the din could be heard the hellish laughter and shouts of revenge from the raiders. The next thing was that they rushed up the street, breaking windows and kicking doors on the way. They stopped at McVaughn's, yelled at him to come out, then set the place on fire. The next thing we heard was a bomb exploding and the house was up in flames. 
Aunt Nora rushed to the top of the house to rescue Mary, that's the baby, but the fumes were so suffocating that she fell, and she said she could not go any further. I ran down to see which way was clear for us to escape. I shouted to Aunt Nora to throw me the baby, and called to Joe to drag Aunt Nora down. We ran down the barrack lane, and had only gone a few steps when they came around the corner, saw us escaping, and fired a shot which missed us. We ran down the promenade, and as we were climbing over the rocks, Miss Baker's dog, seemingly gone mad with fright, bit me in the leg. However, we struggled on down the rocks to the sea, Joe and I carrying Mary in turn. She awoke then, but was too terrified to cry. The poor little thing. God. The reason that the witness and her family were climbing down those rocks, by the way, was because the whole village of Lahinch fled to the local sand dunes. And reportedly, they stayed there. The whole village slept in the sand dunes for two days because they were too frightened to go home. And they thought the Black and Tans would return to finish off the job. By the way, if you want to read the Irish Bulletin, there's a few issues of them on the National Museum of Ireland website. So you can check that out. As we know from previous instalments in this series, the doll didn't have to look very far to find testimonies like this. New reports of black and tan cruelty and violence were coming out every day, and each and every one of them was put down in the Irish Bulletin and reported to foreign correspondents. In this way, the determined rebel strategy of capturing international media attention became one of the world's greatest assets in the war. Yeah. In addition to all this press, remember that the doll representatives had been holding these monster meetings mm. in the USA. We've discussed De Valera and his big US rallies, but there were also people like Mary McSweeney, who was one of the six women elected to the doll during the elections of 1921. She was the sister of the hunger striker Terence McSweeney, and she went on a highly publicized tour in America along with her brother's widow, mm. making speeches to the crowds and giving evidence to commissions. The sheer attention that these tours captured is actually hard to overestimate Mm. now. To give you an example of that, a few months later, Muriel McSweeney, the widow, Terence's widow, she became the first woman ever to be given the freedom of New York City. So Mm. you can see really that, you know, people are listening. They were like celebrities. Yeah. The Dole were incredibly successful in broadcasting details of the war in the United States. After the burning of Cork, an American Committee for Relief in Ireland was set up to send humanitarian aid to victims of the Black and Tans. It had a branch in every state in the US through which it sent out the following appeal to the public in 1921. Here's what it said. In Ireland today, thousands of women and children have been driven to the pitiful refuge of the fields. Thousands of workers have been thrown out of employment. In Belfast alone, 30,000 shipyard workers and their families are on the verge of starvation. Ireland is virtually the only place in the world where the destruction of resources has been continuous. Today, industry is paralysed and the great part of the able-bodied male population is leading a hunted and fugitive existence. If conditions continue unrelieved, Ireland faces virtual annihilation. You can see how that would, I suppose, address an Irish-American audience who, at that time, was more or less still the famine was in living memory. Mm, Absolutely. Many of them had fled from it. In 1921, the Commission sent a delegation from America to tour Ireland for 49 days, visiting towns and villages that had been burned and making quite detailed financial estimates of the damage. They concluded that 90% of all destruction had been carried out on civilian properties. Yeah, that same committee raised millions for the victims of reprisals. I took a look at the report, Mm. um, their their ledger, basically, from 1921. And it is 
It's just so fascinating, and you can see all the finances for each state. Um, like New York City alone that year raised almost a million dollars for wow. this, you know, and it's just I mean, like huge, huge, huge goals and huge um, uh, income that they're getting from all over the place, places like Arizona and Missouri mm. and whatever. Uh, they they even spent eighteen thousand pounds on the building of new houses in Belfast for Catholic refugees oh. who had been burnt out of their homes during the pogroms that we talked about mm. in our last episode. Uh, those houses are actually still there today. You can go and see them. The street is called Acumri Street, and Acumri is the acronym of oh. that committee, right? It's the international code for this American Committee of the Relief um, uh, for Ireland. So actions like this and framings like this mm. only helped to consolidate the British campaign in Ireland as this kind of humanitarian crisis. Mm. And ultimately, by 1921, the Irish narrative of the war had completely overshadowed the official imperial line on the international stage, and most importantly, in America. So how does this influence the offer of a truce? Basically, Britain's reputation was being trashed, mm. as was that of the empire. Change was in the air all over the world, and Westminster had to be extremely careful not to let international opinion turn too much. It's really interesting to think about how certain structural elements worked in Ireland's favour here. Stuff like the English language, mm. um, the advent of mass media, communications being quick those kind of things actually made it possible to get the word out about these kind of things mm. whereas they wouldn't perhaps have been possible in the past with other atrocities of empire mm. at the same time people in britain too were seeing all this media coverage of what was happening in ireland and a lot of the more sympathetic newspapers in the uk were increasingly taking the side of the rebels public opinion was very quickly turning against Westminster's policy in Ireland and it was very clear that any further escalation of the war would have been highly unpopular. Even the king, who was George V, reportedly expressed dismay at the excesses of the black and tans and how much it had tarnished the UK's standing in the world. Essentially, the relentless international media attention given to the Irish rebels was becoming a major liability mm. for Britain and it was time for Westminster to cut its losses. For the greater good of empire, it was just judicious to offer some form of concession to the Irish rebels and get this war out of the newspapers now. <laughs> right. So, amazingly, on the 11th of July, 1921, Great Britain declared a truce mm. with Ireland. Everyone would stop fighting for now and get around the tables and try to work out an agreed solution together. Britain's Undersecretary for Ireland, Alfred Cope, reportedly declared... We are willing to acknowledge that we are defeated. There is nothing else for us to do but to draft 400,000 men and exterminate the whole population of the country, and we are not willing to do that. We are willing to withdraw our whole establishment from the lowest policeman to the highest judge. This period of truce, which lasted from July until December, was this really strange time. On one level, it was an astonishing victory for the Irish. They had succeeded in wearing down the British Empire and mm. getting them to officially negotiate some form of real independence. And on the other hand, even though the war had been officially suspended by now, the Dáil and the IRA were prepared for chaos to break out again at any moment. They really did not know how serious any of this was. Mm. Here's Conor Mulva, Senior Lecturer in History at University College Dublin. The signing of the truce, that is a really significant moment. It's a period in which the IRA can kind of explore itself where members of Sinn Féin can finally come out of hiding and where I think a lot of the republic that has been articulated in the years of the conflict begins to actually put flesh on the bones and the imagined community or it's a real community but one that couldn't convene starts to actually meet and 
discuss what a republic will mean. We can count on one hand the number of truces that the British army can sign with other armies that they're, they're fighting against up to this point, including the American revolutionaries, uh, the South African revolutionaries. So this is a major moment. It's a huge defeat for the British army, I think, in many ways. OK, we, we can say that the IRA is on the back foot and they also need to treat for peace in July of 1921. But the greatest army in the world, one of the, the four great powers that has just concluded the Treaty of Versailles, is concluding a peace terms and treaties on their own soil with an army that has been armed through illegal arms importations, through raiding of, of both military and police arms all around the country, and that have really, through both civil disobedience and a paramilitary campaign, brought the British state and the British apparatus of policing and military to their knees over a two-year campaign or a two-and-a-half-year campaign. Like we mentioned earlier, one of the hopes behind the truce was the possibility of making home rule work. And this all comes into play just a few days after the truce was signed. When we left you in our last instalment, the Government of Ireland Bill of 1920 had just established two home rule territories for Ireland. Northern Ireland with a local parliament in Belfast and Southern Ireland with a planned local parliament in Dublin. Now, the inauguration of the first of these in Belfast Mm -hmm. had been a relative success. You can actually see film footage of it if if you look it up online and you can see lots and lots of cheering crowds. Mm. There's a grand new Northern Ireland Parliament building. It was inaugurated to much, much fanfare. The British King came to open it. There was a big official celebration with drumming and fireworks and massive cheering crowds. And the new local representatives came, you know, marching proudly in to take their seats. And the whole thing was basically marketed as part and parcel of this brilliant solution to the Irish question, which, of course, in the larger context, it was far from being. Right. Mainly because that solution relied on the success of a second local parliament in Dublin. The idea was that both local parliaments would work together and eventually reunite the island under home rule. The fact that anyone in Westminster believed this to be possible indicates that they hadn't totally understood what had just happened on most of the island. Um, Whatever the case, their illusions would quickly be shattered. Mm, Yeah, and I think the knowledge gap, once again, probably Mm. had a role to play here. Like, there does seem to be this belief in Westminster that most Irish people at the heart of things were still loyal to Britain. Mm. And that if the IRA was defeated, that the greater population could be brought to their senses, you know, again. Mm. Like, the the real frustration at the heart of British government was really that Ireland was monopolising everyone's time. Mm. Like, that's what they're really angry about here. If you look at debates from the House of Commons from this period, they're not as much really ever talking about how they can fix the situation in Ireland as they're talking about how to get these Irish issues off the table mm. and to move on to more important matters in their minds. Mm. So it's kind of not surprising in a way that they hadn't actually really thought this through or looked into it too deeply. In reality, the vast majority of Irish nationalists in the South owed their allegiance to the Dáil now and had no interest in what would have been seen as a second-rate Home Rule Parliament. Even among moderates and unionists in the South, the partition of the island into two Home Rule jurisdictions had caused serious resentment. The Southern Ireland Parliament was to be set up in the Royal College of Science buildings on Dublin's Merrion Street, which had been one of the flagship constructions under Westminster's policy of constructive unionism. It was to resemble kind of like a, a mini version of the British Parliament with the House of Commons, a House of Lords and presided over by the British King. So let's zoom in on the Southern Ireland Parliament because this actually turns out to be a really pivotal point for mm-hmm. what was to come. 
Like you said, Naomi, a lot of Britain's hopes depended on this Southern Ireland Parliament working. If they could just get this up and running, they thought, they could satisfy the more moderate nationalists and break support for the doll, and the whole house of cards of the War of Independence would fall down. But the whole thing ended up backfiring just so spectacularly. Like we mentioned in our last instalment, Sinn Féin actually decided to stand for election in this Southern Ireland Parliament, which they didn't recognise, right? Mm -hmm. And so that might sound odd, but they had a plan, they had a strategy. Right. Yeah. Sinn Féin's whole legitimacy was based on their massive electoral mandate, which they had won back in 1918. Now they planned to renew that mandate in the most public and unignorable way. They stood for election on the principle that they would have nothing to do with the Southern Ireland Parliament. And when the votes were tallied, they won their greatest majority ever. Of the possible 128 seats in the Southern Ireland House of Commons, Sinn Féin won 124 of them, reinforcing support for the Dáil more than ever before in the Southern 26 counties. Even more embarrassingly for Westminster, 43 of those Sinn Féin MPs who'd just been elected were either on the run or being held in prison at that moment. The remaining four seats were won by independent unionists who essentially represented all that was left of political unionism in the South after partition. Yeah, and this gets worse. The whole thing almost immediately turns into a farce. Mm. Disastrously, the British government decided to stage the same kind of big ceremonial state opening of Parliament in Dublin as they Mm. had done in Belfast, right? Um, The king didn't go. It was a bit too dangerous for the king to go, as you can imagine. But the uh, the viceroy was there representing the king and the nobility and the whole lot. Loads of people, actually, loads of people uh, high up who were supposed to be there actually just didn't show up because they were afraid. And amazingly, even when it came out that only four of the 128 MPs were actually going to show up to this state opening, it went ahead. And this, ironically, created a huge media spectacle because the surrounding streets were almost completely empty during the state ceremony. Nobody came. No Mm. Dubliners actually came out to watch it, really. Apparently, Mm. um, reportedly, there were, like, beggars kind of, uh, like, dancing around in front of it. (laughs) You know, like you're kind of laughing at the whole thing, right? Um, Instead of a crowd of happy onlookers, there was just this huge crowd of journalists, international (laughs) journalists who were like feverishly taking pictures of this lavish celebration taking place in empty streets. So the four unionist MPs have to walk into the parliament under these conditions, holding their heads up high. And in they go to try and get things started. And once they got inside there weren't enough of them to elect a speaker. So that everyone had to just go home after 20 minutes. Oh my God. This moment marks a sea change in Britain's attitudes to forthcoming negotiations. The Sinn Féin victory of 1921 and the devastating failure of the Southern Ireland project uh, finally made it crystal clear that they had crossed a point of no return. The Dole was here to stay and practically the whole Southern Territory supported it. Home rule in the South was no longer an option. Right. So there's our context, right? A lot of context, but, you know, vital to know. And from this comes an astonishing concession. On July 20th, less than a month after the disastrous state opening of the Home Rule Parliament in Dublin, Lloyd George's government at Westminster made an executive decision. They were going to offer the Irish rebels dominion status Mm. for the southern 26 counties. Now, at this stage, the term dominion was still really ambiguous, and Mm. we need to keep this in mind. Mm. 
It had been used a few years earlier to refer to the form of self-government extended to Canada and Australia. So these were countries that were effectively autonomous, but they were also subject to British legislative supremacy at that point. Mm. So in other words, it would have turned Ireland into something like what Canada was at that point, Mm -hmm. with much more autonomy than it would have had under home rule, but still remaining part of the imperial possessions. But the exact details of this were not at all clear from the word dominion. Right. Lloyd George made his initial offer in a letter to de Valera, which read, The British government invite Ireland to take her place in the great association of free nations, over which his majesty reigns, as earnest of their desire to obliterate old quarrels and to enable Ireland to face the future with her own strength and hope. They propose that Ireland shall assume forthwith the status of a dominion. The offer included a number of conditions. One, that because Ireland represented a unique geographical weak point for Britain, Britain would maintain a military presence in Ireland by land, sea and air. Two, that Britain could still recruit Irish people to the Imperial armies. Three, that Ireland cannot impose trade restrictions on Britain and vice versa. And four, that Ireland would continue to pay back the national debt it had accrued under the United Kingdom. And by the way, if you listen to our neutrality episode, so much of this comes up again later on. Mm. It's so interesting to see it laid out here. Uh, But we might, Naomi, talk more about that and those links in our exclusive Patreon half pint debrief. (laughs) The debrief, which we will be recording right after the show. Yeah, and if you want to listen in to that debrief and hear more about it and what we thought about the making of this episode, you can sign up over on www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. There you can access exclusive extra content spanning right back to 2018. And you'll also be spanning the continued making of the show. By the way, I counted how many extra bonus episodes we have on there recently. And it was 84, which I was actually surprised at. 84 extra episodes await you on Patreon. Naomi, how have we had time to make 84 (laughs) episodes? I have no idea. That actually actually makes me tired (laughs) thinking about that number. Right, yes. So do get on over and check out those bloody 84 pieces of extra content. (laughs) Back to this offer then. Right, so Britain's offer of dominion status tells you actually a lot about Westminster's position here. For them, it was completely out of the question to recognise the Republic in Ireland. Mm. Like, we have to understand that they were not going to do this. The idea of a republic back then would have immediately drawn parallels with the independence of America, and Westminster really wanted to avoid those parallels. Mm. You know, that was like basically the breakdown of their first attempt at an empire, right? Right. A republic was a form of government as well that completely rejected monarchy and nobility and all the most important symbols of British supremacy that kind of kept the empire together, right, in a kind of narrative or discourse. Mm. And it also represented total separation from Britain and the empire, which was not something Westminster wanted other colonies to think was possible. They Mm. wanted, you know, to maintain at least some kind of symbolic uh, community of nations underneath uh, the monarch. Mm. However, dominion status was still loads of power to give away when, you know, they didn't have to do this. Especially when you consider how reluctant some in the British government had been to home rule, right? Mm. You know, just a few years before this. The Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, 
invited a Sinn Féin delegation to London, where he made this offer in person to de Valera. We actually know a lot about what happened during that meeting, because it was all recorded by Lloyd George's secretary-slash-mistress, mm. Frances Stevenson. She notes that the Prime Minister had a huge map of the British Empire brought into the room in advance of the meeting to show the greatness of the Empire and to, quote, get de Valera to recognise it and the King. Yeah, right. <laughs> so... Lord George is recorded as saying to de Valera, quote, Terrible as events have been in Ireland, it is nothing to what they will be if we fail to come to an agreement. Mm. The British Empire is getting rid of its difficulties and we shall soon be able to withdraw our troops from other parts of the world. I hesitate to think of the horror if war breaks out again in Ireland. Okay, threatening. Yeah. De Valera was not impressed. In fact, he was outraged at what he saw from an outright threat from the British Prime Minister. Mm. Um, They tried to negotiate a few more times, but eventually De Valera returned to Ireland, having rejected the terms that were on offer. Yeah. On August 10th, De Valera sends an official reply to Lord George, written entirely in Irish. (laughs) And then then he addresses him as a cara. (laughs) <laughs> which is brilliant. Um, that's just the Irish um, word for my friend, which is an official deer, right? An equivalent to deer. Yeah. But I don't know how formal it would be considered in this context. Uh, that letter, it was accompanied with an English translation. I think a little bit later, a mm-hmm. translation arrived. And it reads, The Irish people's belief is that national destiny can best be realised in political detachment, free from imperialistic entanglements, which they feel will be fruitful only of ruinous wars, crushing burdens, <laughs> social discontent, and general unrest and unhappiness. Okay. Like the small states of Europe, they are prepared to hazard their independence on the basis of moral right, confident that as they would threaten no nation or people, they would in turn be free from aggression themselves. So he calls out the conditions of dominion status in this letter as just ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. He just says, this offer is ridiculous. Particularly, he, he really ridicules Britain's wish to maintain this military presence uh, on the island to protect themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he says, quote, The natural position is reversed. Under your proposal, the smaller island must give military safeguards and guarantees to the larger and suffer itself to be reduced to the position of a helpless dependency. It should be obvious that we could not urge the acceptance of such proposals upon our people. Hmm. Now, the Irish side did know that they would have to accept some compromises in any treaty. Everyone knew from the outset that a republic was off the table. So the question now was how to guarantee a status that was as similar to a republic as possible and the rest could be worked out later. What de Valera actually hoped to do was to agree some kind of quote, external association with the empire, right? This is what it was known as, an external association. Mm. What does that mean? It means that he wanted to make a formal agreement that the Irish state would be associated with the empire in some legal way, right? Mm -hmm. We are legally friends with you. We legally won't harm you. We will legally trade you, Mm -hmm. but not be part of you, right? Mm -hmm. Not actually be part of the empire. So this, as de Valera saw, was kind of a fair compromise. It was something between a totally independent republic and a dominion. And in order to present this position at the negotiating table, Dev put together a new team. A team of people to be sent once again to London to speak once again to Lloyd George. Now, this is where things get controversial Mm -hmm. because de Valera himself, who was president of Dol Éireann, refused to travel to this new round of negotiations. 
This led to outrage in the Dáil because everyone knew that de Valera was one of their most accomplished statesmen. And here he was sending much less experienced colleagues into the most important negotiations of the war. Some people have suggested that de Valera knew exactly what was coming, that the outcome of any agreement with London was going to be bitterly disappointing for the people of Ireland, and he wanted to get others to own it politically, others to do his dirty work for him. Right, there's there's loads of different perspectives on this moment. Yes. And there's also a lot of mythology, which we, we need to be careful of, right? Yes. Um, for a long time after this treaty, there was a narrative of de Valera as this, like, treacherous schemer. Yeah. And Michael Collins was kind of painted as this kind of sacrificial lamb, innocent, who was sent to the negotiating table. Mm. Now, when we kind of think about this narrative, we have to think about two things. Uh, first of all, there was a civil war directly after this, mm. right, where de Valera and Michael Collins were on opposite sides. So you can imagine that one side of that civil war had a vested interest in painting de Valera as this kind of treacherous character. Yeah. And the second thing is that Michael Collins died young. He died very, very young. So it was very easy to paint him as this kind of young hero, right? Yeah. While de Valera went on to make lots more enemies and to do lots more stupid things, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so Michael Collins kind of gets an out in uh, in kind of the comparison with him and de Valera simply because he died so young. Now, most historians today will say that this whole thing was really, really complicated, much more complicated than that. A lot of them will take different perspectives on this. And listeners, it's up to you, really, to decide for Mm -hmm. yourselves. Really, we'll never really know what was at the bottom of Dev staying at home while the negotiations continued. One more important thing that he did was to assign his negotiators, quote, plenipotentiary powers. Big word. Yes, right? it is a big word. Plenipotentiary powers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, lo- I like saying the word. <laughs> plenipotentiary. Um, plenipotentiary means simply that the negotiating team had the power to represent the doll and to sign treaties on the doll's behalf. Mm-hmm. So they could go and kind of become the president mm-hmm. and sign the treaty um, on the president's behalf. Right. At the same time, Dev, in a pretty scheming moment, he also sent instructions to these same negotiators, the plenipotentiaries, that even though they had this power, he wanted to be informed of anything that they did before they used this power. Right. Which kind of negates the whole power, right, in the first place. Why would you give them this power if you didn't want them to use it without asking you, right? right? So it does look like he was trying to find a way to say that whatever happened here, it's not his fault. So let's have a look at some of these famous plenipotentiaries. First of all, and most famously, there was Michael Collins. Mm -hmm. He'd been born in Cork. He left school at 15 to become a clerk in a post office in London and later worked at a bank in New York. After his return to Dublin, he joined the 1916 uprising, which got him arrested and interned for a year in a British prison camp. At the age of 29, he got himself elected to the Dáil, where he became finance minister and director of intelligence of the IRA. He was also extremely well-liked among the public and his colleagues, and considering his uh, young age, was extremely precocious. He was also quite good-looking, which made him into a bit of an icon for the Irish public. Yeah. Uh, Next up was Arthur Griffin, who you've already met. He was the original founder of Sinn Féin and erstwhile proponent of dual monarchy, if you remember (laughs) back that far. After him, there was a guy called Robert Barton, who was a really interesting character. Mm. Uh, He had been born into a unionist, Protestant, Anglo-Irish landowning dynasty, you know, Mm. with a big house near Glendalough. And he was actually one of the soldiers who was sent in to crush the Easter Rising in 1916. But after he witnessed the British crackdown on the rebels, he began to sympathise with them and he defected. He abandoned the, the army and he joined the Republican cause. Um, at this stage, he held a position as the Dáil's economy minister. 
Then there was Eamon Duggan, he was former director of intelligence for the IRA, and the Dublin barrister George Gavin Duffy, who had become quite famous for defending Roger Casement in court after the Easter Rising. Mm. So, you know, in one way, a bit of a ragtag crew, um, but each of these guys was chosen for their particular expertise. So finance, uh, intelligence, economics, foreign foreign affairs, and the law, basically. Right. On the other side of the table representing Westminster was David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, Lord Birkenhead, who was an arch-conservative and hardline Ulster Unionist, Austin Chamberlain, who'd been one of the main opponents of Home Rule back in the 1880s, and Winston Churchill, who was Secretary of State for the Colonies and Chairman of the Cabinet Commission on Irish Affairs. Alongside them were MP Gordon Hewitt, Lamming Worthington Evans, the Secretary of State for War, and Hamar Greenwood, the Chief Secretary for Ireland. Right. You can only imagine how the Irish plenipotentiaries felt walking into negotiations with these guys. Right. Guys with names like Lamming Worthington Evans. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, each of these guys have like 17 titles before their names, okay. right? Uh, as well, like Lord Privy, Lord Chancellor of the Circle of the Chancellor Privy, this and that, right? It's okay. really, you know, must have been very intimidating. And like leaving aside that these plenipotentiaries were fairly young, most of them anyway, and inexperienced, and that they were facing off with these titled heads of the British Empire. Right. Remember also that these guys were probably completely exhausted, like they were living through a war, right? Yeah. They had effectively been governing Ireland on the run for the last year or two. And, you know, there was violence and terrible trauma all around them on a daily basis. Until a few weeks ago, they had been denounced as gangsters and terrorists by the same men who were sitting across from the table yeah. uh, of them now. you know, And here they are walking up to the doors of 10 Downing Street with a team of IRA security men around them. Mm. And they're supposed to like go in there and fight out the terms of an independent Ireland with the British Prime Minister, you know, who has no intention of giving them any more than he, right. than he absolutely has to. I think we probably can't underestimate how intimidating it is to be faced with the confidence of men who believe they're born to rule and yeah. that they have a god-given right to rule the biggest empire on the planet and to rule over the lands all of the earth and the nations yeah. Yeah. including yours yeah. can you imagine yeah and, and on their uh, turf as well on their turf like, in you know, Westminster in Westminster and I assume, I assume they're setting the terms they're t- setting what the negotiations look like what's the timetable you know, the Irish team are sort of there at their pleasure. Yeah, basically, that's exactly what they do. And I mean, for anyone who maybe has walked into, you know, a, an intimidating kind of um, authoritarian place, you know, yeah. which where you feel like you don't fit in, just think about how much that was magnified. So the doll knew this, right? Yeah. This is this kind of tickles me in a kind of sad way. Mm. So they put together an expense budget, so okay. that and they sent the plenipotentiaries to Harrods, and they said, buy the best suits that you can oh possibly buy. Oh my God. Send them in to get new clothes. Remember, Remember the clothes that they had during a war for two years? Yeah. God knows what they were wearing. So into Harrods to buy new suits and like wonderfully we have receipts of what they bought and they bought things like bonbons oh, and they? mints and chocolates as okay. well when they were in Harrods. <laughs> like, they probably hadn't seen stuff like this in so long. Um, and they also, they rented a Rolls Royce. Wow. And you know, they said, okay, off we go. We're going to like march in there with our heads held high, dressed to the nines in a mm. Rolls Royce and we'll uh, look just as good as these, you know, British counterparts. Yeah. There was also, to add to this pressure, a huge international media presence all around the negotiations. So there was mm. clicking journalists, not just outside 10 Downing Street, but they were outside the house where the plenipotentiaries were staying. Oh. Every time they got into a car, they were following the car up and down the streets. 
And there were huge crowds of Irish people, thousands of Irish people who were living in London, emigrants, yeah. who wanted to know what was happening. Right. And they were camping, basically, outside 10 Downing Street with Irish flags, some of them saying the rosary, <laughs> and, you know, waiting to see what would happen from this. Okay. So, my God, like, what, what pressure these right. guys were under. The scenario was also very dangerous. Um, so these were wanted men, technically, actually, mm. in London. There was a £10,000 bounty on the head of Michael Collins alone. So there was a fear that things could go badly wrong, you know, if the negotiations didn't go well. So much so, actually, that the Dáil had organised for a secret aircraft to stand by in South London so that if the plenipotentiaries had to flee England quickly, then they could. And it wasn't just London where the tensions were high like this. Mm. Back in Ireland, nobody knew what direction this could go in. It was entirely possible that these negotiations could end at any minute without an agreement or in some kind of dispute. Or in them being arrested. Or in them being arrested, exactly. And that might mean an immediate British invasion or, you know, God knows what. Yeah. Here's Conor Mulva again. I suppose that period between the truce in July of 1921 and the signing of the treaty in, uh, in December of 1921 is a period of massive flux. Both forces are gathering intelligence. The IRA is drilling. The IRA is arming. I think it's during the truce period that the consignment of Thompson submachine guns comes into Ireland. And so there's all kind of fascinating stuff happening during the truce period while the treaty is occurring in London. There's a lot of contingency planning along uh, going along at the side during the, the truce period as well. So the first plane of the Irish Air Corps uh, was actually bought to get Michael Collins and other members of the treaty delegation out of London um, if negotiations broke down. For deputies in Dáil Éireann, there was no guarantee that Ireland was not going to return to, in Lloyd George's words, immediate and terrible war. And the fact that Collins was planning both for this plane, which they nicknamed the Croydon Flyer, to get him out of London so he could direct operations on the ground in Ireland if war resumed, and secondly, a plane that could actually bomb targets either in Britain or in Ireland uh, in the result of the resumption of hostilities. You know, we're lulled into a false sense of security that every truce, every ceasefire is the one that brings a conflict to an end. But it was just as precarious in 1921 that the truce could have broken down at any moment. And at various points, particularly in November of 1921, it came extremely close to breaking down. And that could have seen a very different war. As Connor explains, it was somewhat surreal for Dole representatives to suddenly be engaging with talks with men who they might easily have assassinated like a few weeks previously. Just before the truce was offered in July, plans were being discussed for Dole representatives to travel to London for entirely different reasons. There is a plan by Cabinet in 1921 that Carl Brewer, who's the Minister of Defence, will personally go over to London and gun down the cabinet in the House of Commons. And this plan goes as far as Carl Brewer carries out a recce on the House of Commons. He brings his Mauser 96C, his his Peter the Painter uh, automatic pistol, in his trousers into the House of Commons. And he walks with a limp because obviously he was shot in 1916 multiple times. So he gets mistaken for a war veteran and a kind-hearted person at Westminster decides to let him into the, the very front seats in the Strangers Gallery in the House of Commons during his recce. And he's sitting there with an automatic pistol shoved into his trousers, concealed somewhere in his person, and kind of saying, okay, yeah, I could do this. I could could kill Lloyd George. I could kill the whole cabinet. These are the kind of plans that are going on in the background. And cabinet ultimately decides to veto that plan because the truce occurs. But they got pretty close to, you know, they they, they looked into the feasibility study. The Minister of Defence is sitting in the House of Commons with a gun somewhere on his person, 
deciding if he, he has the range and the firepower to take out the whole British cabinet where they sit in the House of Commons. So these are absolutely incredible events during the, the War of Independence. Now, all these Irish plenipotentiaries had a fair idea that they were being set up to fail. But they also understood the gravity of the possibility of war. Mm. Their job was to try and get the best possible deal from the British while understanding that any capitulation would be seen as unacceptable back in Ireland, no matter what happened. Mm. The negotiations were carried out in two formats. Formal negotiations, wherein all members of each team were present, and informal negotiations, where two members from each side discussed in private. On the Irish side, the two chosen negotiators were generally Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith. This went on for months, with the plenipotentiaries returning to Dublin on a regular basis to update the doll on the proceedings. The plenipotentiaries basically had two main goals. Number one, to secure some form of Irish unity. Mm -hmm. And number two, to ensure that any new Irish state would maintain its sovereignty. Both of these issues were going to be almost impossible to square. Mm. James Craig, the Prime Minister in the new Northern Ireland Parliament, he had no intention of budging an inch for these negotiations. Mm. He had his Home Rule Parliament now, you know, that was that. And it was almost unimaginable that the Ulster Unionists would give up their Belfast Parliament at Mm. this stage. Meanwhile, the whole point of Dominion status was to hold back a certain amount of sovereignty, right? To ensure some measure of dependence on empire. So the Irish weren't going to get that. But this part, as both sides knew, could be fudged, right? Uh, The beginning of a long history of fudging in Anglo-Irish relations. (laughs) Like I mentioned, the Dominion status of Australia and Canada was already very ambiguous. No one had actually legally defined at this point whether or not they were sovereign states, actually. Mm. So the crux of this question would essentially have to be played out in the exact wording of the treaty. And the wording would time and time again become this major, major sticking point. You can see drafts of this treaty where each side has crossed out and recrossed out certain words and phrases and replaced them with new ones. These tiny changes could make all the difference to the legal status of the state to come. And the changing of even one word could be a huge cause of contention. Yeah, even the word treaty actually was contentious because of exactly what you said earlier, Naomi. uh, Because it implies that the agreement is being made between two distinct states, Right. right, if you make a treaty. So the British didn't want to use that word because they didn't want to recognise the Irish Republic, right? Uh, Declared Mm. by the doll. I think they said it would be like negotiating with Yorkshire. I think that was a quote from one of them. (laughs) You can't sign a treaty with Yorkshire. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. In their view, they were signing a treaty with part of their own country. Yeah. And the Irish, on the other other hand, you know, had to have this recognised. They insisted on the term treaty. Mm. And Lloyd George eventually gave in to them. Um, Fascinatingly, Collins also insisted that the word empire not be used in the Oath of Allegiance, which Hmm. was going to be part of this Dominion Agreement. Um, Instead, he got the British to use a different word from Hmm. empire. And the term that he got them to use was Commonwealth of Nations. Um, So he got them to use this because it was a way to imply more association. Remember, de Valera was all about this association with empire rather than membership of it. So Commonwealth implies a kind of just common participation Hmm. rather than one part owning the rest. But the fact that he uses this term is really significant because it was the first time that the term Commonwealth of Nations was used in an official capacity when referring to Britain's colonial territory. Amazing. Fascinating. It had been used informally a few years previously, every now and again, to kind of soften the blow of empire. But now it's being used in an official document. And then a few years later, it was used again 
in a, an official document at an imperial conference as a way to describe this, you know, uh, greater community of colonial territories while not trying to, uh, you know, um, rile up those who might have been turning against the empire. Right. Mm. In the end, the question of sovereignty for, for the proposed free state was fudged so much that it largely became a matter of interpretation. Yep. For instance, Article 4 of the treaty ended up saying that Ireland swore allegiance to the constitution of the free state, but it also said that they would, quote, be faithful to His Majesty King George V and his successors, unquote. The Free State went on to interpret this as a declaration of Irish sovereignty since allegiance was sworn to the Free State, while it only agreed to be faithful to the British King. But the British continued to interpret the same wording as proof that the Free State was not a sovereign state. You can see in this why de Valera's 1937 constitution, which later removed all mention of the British monarch, was so important. Yeah, so what about the question of partition? Mm. Well, the negotiating parties agreed two main things here. Firstly, Northern Ireland would be given a vote to either join or remain the new free state. Mm -hmm. Now, this was basically just a bit of pageantry um, because the jurisdiction of Northern Ireland had been specifically designed to ensure a two-thirds unionist majority, so there was just no question of them ever choosing to join this free state. Secondly, and more importantly, Lloyd George agreed to the establishment of a boundary commission, Mm. which would be charged with revising the borders of Northern Ireland over the coming years. Now, the Irish side believed that this was uh, something that they could really work with, right? Mm-hmm. Remember, Northern Ireland was completely new at this stage. Mm. It was not even a year old. And already it was causing huge problems. Very few people thought it would last long as a jurisdiction. And this idea of a boundary committee further signaled that the nature of the border was temporary. It was still up for discussion, right? right. It was a thing that could change. And that these problems might work themselves out at a later date. And considering that they understood, the the Irish side understood, they're not going to win the North with force. You know, this was an option to do this peacefully, maybe, Mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. a later date, maybe over a bit of time. So it's no cliche, but in all of this, Michael Collins thought that it was best to play the long game, right? Like, get as much autonomy as possible from Britain now. Mm -hmm. Go along with what Britain needs, just so that they can save face on the international stage right now. And then later on, when Britain loses interest again, they can just go back and claw back the rest of their sovereignty, (laughs) right? You know, when things had simmered down. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, it is a funny thing here that Mm. a lot of people think that the treaty was all about partition, but it wasn't really, because like I just said, partition, you know, very much was felt as something temporary on Mm. both sides of the argument now. And, you know, people didn't worry about it too much. So the treaty was far from what Ireland wanted. But in Colin's words, basically, to sum it up, it offered the freedom to achieve freedom. Right. The ultimate signing of the treaty also came about under dire threat from Britain. Lloyd George informed the plenipotentiaries that if they walked away from the negotiating table without signing a treaty, he would unleash, quote, immediate and terrible war upon Ireland in a matter of days. This was something that the plenipotentiaries knew the weakened Irish Republic could never overcome. On the 6th of December 1921, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed by both parties. If ratified by Dáil Éireann, Ireland would now become a dominion of the British Empire like Canada, with extra clauses protecting the state's sovereignty, its trade agreements and its defence capacity, as well as the establishment of a border commission and a watered-down oath of allegiance to the British monarch. The British army would maintain a limited presence in three of Ireland's strategic ports, known as the Treaty Ports, and the rest of the Crown forces would immediately evacuate the 26 counties. 
the resulting state would be known as Seerstots Erin, or the Irish Free State. Now, Collins and Griffith had to take their agreement back to Dublin and face de Valera. It's said that Lord Birkenhead, who was dismayed at these concessions that were given over to Ireland, told Michael Collins that he had just signed his political death warrant and that Michael Collins responded, I have signed my actual death warrant. That's chilling. Mm-hmm. All hell broke loose in the Dáil when this treaty was returned to Dublin. About half of the elected representatives believed that it was vital to ratify the treaty in order to avoid a return to war, while the other half refused to accept the fudged language on sovereignty, the unresolved question of partition, and especially the maintenance of an oath, no matter how watered down, to the British king. The TDs debated for a full nine days about this, and those debates became some of the most important and influential texts in the parliamentary history of 20th century Ireland. Mm. As you can imagine, those debates were incredibly passionate and often full of bitterness, and you can read them on the Irish government website today if you're interested. That atmosphere of conflict was not helped by the fact that de Valera, who had refused to attend the negotiations, now objected vehemently to the finalised treaty. Speaking in those debates, on the 19th of December, Arthur Griffith pronounced the following words. Nearly three months ago, Dáil Éireann appointed plenipotentiaries to go to London to treat with the British government and to make a bargain with them. We have made a bargain. And now by that treaty I am going to stand, and every man with a scrap of honour who signed it is going to stand. It is for the Irish people who are our masters, and not our servants as some think. It is for the Irish people to say whether this is good enough. That same day, de Valera declared this. I wanted, and the cabinet wanted, to get a document we could stand by. A document that could enable Irishmen to meet Englishmen and shake hands with them as fellow citizens of the world. That document makes British authority our masters in Ireland. You have an oath to the Irish constitution, and that constitution will be a constitution which will have the King of Great Britain as head of Ireland. You will swear allegiance to that constitution and to that king. And if the representatives of the Republic should ask the people of Ireland to do that which is inconsistent with the Republic, I say they are subverting the Republic. Later on in those debates, Michael Collins responds with some of his most famous words. He says, For our continued national and spiritual existence, two things are necessary, security and freedom. If the treaty gives us these or helps us to get at these, then I maintain that it satisfies our national aspirations. For the first time in an official document, the former empire is styled the community of nations. Common citizenship is the substitution for the subjugation of Ireland. It is an admission by them that they no longer can dominate Ireland. Do we think at all of what it means to look forward to the directing of the organisation of the nation? Are we simply going to go on keeping ourselves in slavery and subjection, forever keeping on an impossible fight? Or are we never going to stand on our own feet? I want to say that there was never an Irishman placed in such a position as I was by reason of these negotiations. Members of the Dáil well remember that I protested against being selected. Now, as one of those signatories of the document, I naturally recommend its acceptance. I do not recommend it for more than it is. Equally, I do not recommend it for less than it is. In my opinion, it gives us freedom. Not the ultimate freedom that all nations desire and develop to, but the freedom to achieve it. 
At this time, the entire Dole was keenly aware and probably terrified of the consequences of rejecting this treaty. It was this they knew, or quote, immediate terrible war, as Lord George had warned. Here's Conor Mulva again. My old favourite, Owen McNeil, he's the speaker during the, you know, he's the Ken Corla during the, um, the treaty debates. And he warns the deputies, he says, the war that will come, and I'm paraphrasing here, will not be like anything we've ever seen before. And he, he struggles to name the faction that are involved. He says, I don't know how to describe them. Um, perhaps it's best to say the orange faction, but basically he says that orange men will pour over the border south into the Republic. Yeah, the Republic as it was, because it was still a Republic before it becomes a free state. They'll pour into the Republic and they'll be armed to the teeth, backed both financially and militarily by the British government and everything they can throw at us. So McNeil says, ratify this treaty or you're going to have a sectarian conflict that we avoided in 1914 in all its horrificness on the island of Ireland. And the only thing that can even give us a taste to that is the sectarian conflict that we had in Belfast and other parts of Northern Ireland in 1920 to 22. In the end, the treaty was ratified on the 7th of January 1922 by a margin of seven votes. Mm. Within a year, Searstoth Erin had been officially established and, as predicted, Northern Ireland officially opted out of the Dominion state. The British army marched out of Ireland, leaving behind a country riven in two. That establishment of a free state only closed the first chapter in the history of the modern Irish Republic. No sooner had it ended the War of Independence than it ignited a bloody and terrible civil war. Within 15 years, the constitution drawn up by Lloyd George and the Irish plenipotentiaries was ripped up as Eamon de Valera assumed leadership of Ireland and transformed the Dominion Free State into an independent state known as ERA. Twelve years after that, the British finally recognised the southern 26 counties as a completely independent Irish Republic, not subject to the United Kingdom, the Empire or the Commonwealth. But all of these stories are for another time. And with that, our mammoth four-part mini-series on the War of Independence comes to a close. Thanks, guys, for all the kind words you sent us over the course of this little project. It was a lot of work. Yeah. (laughs) It was a lot of work, but it was so worth it. Um, Thanks especially to our patrons for making all of this possible. And remember that you can find our debrief and lots, lots more extra content over on patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. We're going to move on to other issues now. We've got loads of brilliant episodes planned, but of course we might come back and do another mini-series on another topic in future. Mm. So do let us know if you have any suggestions for that. But for now, it's Sloan from me. Sloan, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>